Well, my friends, we're in the midweeks, and we're in 2 Kings, and we're going to walk through the somewhat famous story of Naaman, the leper, being healed by Elisha. I just want to back up, up for a second. Um, let's look big picture. So the book of Kings answers the question about God's promise to David that one of his sons would reign on the throne of Israel in Jerusalem forever. That promise comes from Samuel, but that promise overshadows the entire book. What is God going to do with this promise? Especially because most of the kings who reign um, are not good kings and aren't really worthy of that promise that God's given. So that's the big question. What is God going to do with his promise in the light of unbelieving kings? And it starts with um, David's death, the book of Kings, starts with David's death and handing over the kingdom to Solomon, who has a long reign and with lots of good stuff in it, but his reign becomes corrupt, particularly through his love of women, leading to a love of foreign gods, and the kingdom is split into two. The book ends with the kingdom of um, Jerusalem, or sorry, the kingdom of Judah, um, being taken into exile, and the promise of a king coming back hovering in the distance. That's the beginning and the end. Those are the bookends, the beginning and the end of the thing, of the book. Um, but in the middle, we have these two prophets, uh, Elijah and Elisha. They're the center of the book. And if you have been with me, I may have mentioned Kaz chiasms before, an X-shaped storytelling pattern where the ends correspond to each other, but then the center is what's kind of the, a center focal point of what's going on. And so as we're reading through these stories of these prophets, one of the things that God is saying is that as God moved Israel from being a confederation of tribes into a kingdom, God had like one or two generations of ruling over Israel through good kings. But as these kings became unfaithful, he transitioned to ruling over Israel through miracle-working prophets. And so this is what's going on. God's presence is now with Israel, not primarily through the kingship, because only a few of the kings are good, like every other king of Jerusalem is good, and all the northern kingdom kings are bad. Um, but he's ruling through prophecy. He's ruling, ruling through his word, through these empowered prophets. And so this is where the presence of God is during these bad years. And the core of the book of Kings, which covers centuries, really slows down in these two lives to show the presence of God in Israel is through his power-working prophets. And we're in the life of the second one. And as we're looking at this interaction between Elisha and a foreign king's general, I'm just reminded that, um, do you remember in Elijah's life, he has that showdown with a, uh, the prophets of Baal. He wins, but then he gets chased away by Jezebel. And he goes to a cave and God tells him, go and anoint Elisha to be prophet after you. And then also anoint Hazael to be king over Syria and also anoint Jehu to become king over Israel. And so he prophesies these three transitions, the transition of the uh, pro prophetic power, the transition of a foreign kingdom, and the transition of the northern kingdom. And Elijah only 
accomplishes one in his life or only one of them happen uh, and that's the transfer of prophetic kingship if you want to talk like that but he's not a king but you know what I mean like the prophetic rule and reign going from Elijah to Elisha and in the next few chapters we're going to see lots of interaction between Elisha and Syria and we're going to see those transitions of uh, Ben-Hadad being replaced by Haziel think I'm pronouncing that right I'll correct myself in the future if I'm not and we're going to also see the transition of Jehu taking over the northern kingdom so that's what's coming down the pipe that's the larger context is the fulfillment of the word of the Lord that came to Elijah but this chapter is about God ministering to a foreign king and interestingly sorry a foreign general and interestingly these foreigners kind of have more faith than God's people in this story and I'm going to point that out but it does highlight a couple of things themes in these books are always you know God responds to people's faith and also God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and as we read this you'll see how humility welcomes the grace of God and humility and faith go together and God rewards people's faith all right so second Kings 5 Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So what an introduction. There's this guy named Naaman. He's a general, um, and his king loves him because he keeps uh, getting victory through Naaman. And the prophetic author who's writing this even attributes to the Lord the success that Naaman has because there is only one God and the prophet who wrote this knows this and so whoever wins wins under God's providence and whoever loses loses under God's providence and so the prophet is knowing hey this is a bit of a setup from the Lord and part of what's going on here is that God is not happy with the northern kingdom and he keeps handing the northern kingdom over to her enemies as um, chastisements as discipline but for Naaman, this means he's been super successful. And he's a mighty man of valor, which is a good sign. You know, these were like David's mighty men who were mighty men of valor. So he's a good warrior. But his downfall is that he has a skin disease. Verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet, who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So very interesting. So the Syrians had made a raid into Israel and had kidnapped a girl. And now she's working as a, as a slave. Um, but interesting, in her heart, she sees the leprosy of this general. And she is a, is a young woman of faith. She believes that if this general met the prophet from Samaria, so talking about Elisha, she's like, man, if, if Naaman met Elisha, he, he could get healed. So she is a young girl of faith. And by grace... You know, she's she's doing a kindness to these people who kidnapped her. And so she's obviously not uh, a young woman of bitterness and is willing to speak faith into this family. Verse 4, So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man send word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see what 
that how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So you have a series of people who have a little bit of faith, followed by a king who does not have faith. So the servant girl has faith, Naaman hears it and has enough faith to pursue it, and the king of Syria even lets Naaman go. Now, we don't know. The king of Syria may actually be looking for this occasion of a, quor- of a quarrel. We don't know. But Naaman coming with all these gifts is a sign that he isn't personally seeking a quarrel. The fact that Naaman has come with all this silver and all this gold, he is not looking for this quarrel. And so it's funny how the king of Israel doesn't have as much faith as the slave girl from Israel. And we're supposed to hear that. Even the king of Syria has a little bit more faith that something might happen. He at least lets Naaman go so that the foreign pagan king comes off better than the king of the people of God in the northern kingdom here. And we're meant to feel that and hear that dislocation and kind of go, oh man, how am I doing? Am I a man of faith? Am I a woman of faith in, in my role? Or would I be just as flabbergasted if someone came to me and said, your God told me to do a miracle for me? Verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Okay, so there's a great line. Yes, we're, he's going to meet God here. And God is going to act for his namesake. Verse 9, So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. So this is great. You know, Elisha summons him. Um, Elisha in previous stories has said he doesn't really care about kings. And so when this general, who's like a killing machine, comes to his house, you know, with all the treasures and all this stuff, he's expecting some pomp and circumstance. Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him. Sorry, I'm busy making stew. He just sends out a messenger telling him to go take a bath. And Naaman, this is like a culture shock for Naaman. Naaman would be used to the pageantry of pagan magic. Um you know, slaughtering goats and reading the livers and shaking the bones and all this stuff. He would have been used to all of that. And so when he comes face to face, but not even face to face, when he comes into the presence of a God who is so powerful, he doesn't even need to do anything. um, He's really upset by it. Verse 11, Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all these waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Verse 13, But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Okay, note again the role of servants in here. Okay, these are servants or slaves or whatever they're called, but it's a slave girl that starts this process of Naaman seeking a healing, and now it's his servants that rescue Naaman from his angry response and hear with faith the word of the prophet. They say, whoa, 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 calm down. Why are you so upset? He literally said to you, if you do this, you'll be clean. Why judge the way he told you to get clean? So they, these, these foreign servants 
these Syrian servants hear with faith the word of the prophet and they talk faith into their master and so the master gets the cleaning. And so we're supposed to see again, like look at how God is working through the lowly and the humble here. It's the servants who are running this story. And it's the elites like Naaman and the elites like the king of Israel who are kind of wishy-washy, sometimes running hot and sometimes running cold. But the issue here is faith. And it seems like the humble are more inclined to hear the word of God with faith. Verse 15, Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, except now a present from your servant. So here he comes to proclaim his faith. He's converted. Verse 16, But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Elisha will not receive uh, a reward for something. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. God did it. And so he just says, no, I'm not going to get paid by you, which is great. So he's wrecking all these customs. It's just an act of grace for someone who is willing to have faith. That sounds very New Testament to me. A am I right? Am I right? I think I might be onto something here. Verse 17, then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So he's converted his heart to worship of the Lord. He's still operating a bit as a pagan because he kind of wants to, I don't know, be able to stand on or or kneel on the the land that belongs to the God of Israel, even though he's already confessed that there's no God in all the earth but the Lord, but there's something about, he just wants something tangible. It's hard to blame him. But uh, there you go. Verse 18, In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon, which is their God, to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So he sees already that his service as a general is intertwined with this pagan worship. He, he has to accompany his king. And it looks like he's saying, uh, when the king bows, I will go down with him. Can you please forgive me? Verse 19, and Elisha says to him, and he said to him, go in peace, meaning, yeah, I get it. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, see, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So this is not good. Gehazi has some kind of vengeance or resentment. He, he despises the grace of God towards Naaman. He wants it to cost him something. And, and it's funny that he takes this vow in the name of the Lord. Like the Lord worked a miracle and the Lord commanded not to take payment. But now he says, in the name of as the Lord lives, I'm going to go get something. That's, there's an irony in there. This is not good. Verse 21. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, is all well. And he said, all is well. My master sent me to say, there's just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give me a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. Sorry, yeah, give them to me a talent of silver. So he, he doubles the request. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent them in a way and they departed. Okay, so Gehazi gets this payment, this treasure. And, uh, you know, a little bit messes with Naaman. No, Naaman participates well. He's super generous but he's been duped. 
Verse 26. Oh, verse 25. He, meaning Gehazi, went in and stood before his master. And Elijah said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Which sounds a lot like when the Lord met Adam and said, Where are you, Adam? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Verse 26. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman will cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. And so you see this judgment. Gehazi's own heart has judged him. Uh, Naaman was being rescued from the flesh. He was being rescued from living in the flesh like a pagan, and his flesh was washed clean, and his heart was washed clean. And by refusing to accept the money, he was being introduced to the God of grace. And Gehazi, by chasing after Naaman to make him pay for God's grace, and to operate in the flesh like that to make his healing uh, something that must be bought, he receives the flesh of Naaman. He becomes a leper like he was and there's this reversal and like this whole story is about how god's people in israel are god's people physically but not spiritually and their hearts aren't hearts of faith elisha is a man of faith he's very obedient he doesn't even look at naaman when he shows up he doesn't care what he looks like he just cares about the word of god and gehazi does not have a pure heart even though he's a servant of the prophet of god here and so for us what this says to us is we're meant to be very loyal to the grace of God. We're meant to be people who set ourselves apart to believing that faith wins the mercy of God and faith, ga faith gains the grace of God and no money and no service and no demanding of things from people is meant to interfere with God's grace. And when, uh, and when we hear the word of God, we're meant to not judge it, but respond to it with faith like Naaman's servants convinced him to do. And we're not meant to try to monopolize off of the power of God in action for our own personal gain. So a good story, very uh, with a warning in it, but also a great picture of how gracious God will be when we simply humble ourselves and ask, God, would you save me? Would you cleanse me and make clean for nothing? God will do it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.